Well, there are things that every human being has, right? We all have a body. We all have a soul as human beings. Here's another one. We all have a conscience as human beings. Every human being has a conscience. According to one dictionary, it says that the conscience is that part of your brain that tells you whether you are right or wrong. And we all feel that. We, we feel when we do something wrong, we feel immediate guilt. When we say something, when we do something that we consider wrong, we feel it immediately. Is the conscience always right? No, the conscience isn't always right because of that pesky little thing called sin. So sin infects all of us, even our consciences, even the way that we think about things that are right or wrong. So consciences need two things. They need calibration and they need balancing. And both of which come from the Word of God. Because we're not islands. We're not made to be just independent people. We're called to be in community. So our consciences, consciences affects other people, particularly when our consciences are wrong or out of balance. How do we balance them? I hope to answer all of this from Romans 14 this morning. So if you're not there already, please head there to Romans 14, marching through. Last week, we jumped back into Romans once again. We talked about how the law of God relates to the life of a Christian. True Christian love does no wrong to others. True Christian wokeness is biblical, not cultural. And true Christian faith is seen in righteousness, actual righteousness. All that to say that our, our Christian pursuit of holiness needs to be driven by love. But what about when your views of the Christian life or your views of the Bible don't necessarily line up with another's, your brothers or sisters? This week, Paul changes gears to a more interpersonal level. And before we jump into this, I just got to set a little bit of context and foundation because Paul goes from zero to 60 very quickly in this passage. And we know that the gospel went out in the early church and there were people then from all nations We've seen Paul talking time and time again about both the Jews and the Gentiles. And back then, that was the mind of Jewish thought. There were, there were themselves as the Jews, and then there was another big bucket of everybody else, which was called the Gentiles. The Jews were the people of God. The Jews had the Torah. The Jews had the law. The Jews had the temple. The Jews had the sacrifices and the priests and all of those things. So what do you do when things like the old covenant ceremonial laws like eating different types of food or observing different types of days or, or drinking wine come in conflict with those who are around you? Imagine being a Jew from birth and having all of those laws ingrained in you for decades about what to eat and when to celebrate what and what a holy day was, all of that, and then getting saved. And then going to church in a major metropolitan city like Rome and being with Gentiles who have never heard anything about food laws or holidays. What would that be like? Do you think that would, that would promote some tension in the church? You're absolutely right, it would. How can these two groups with such dramatically different backgrounds and therefore dramatically different consciences about those backgrounds have unity in the church? How can they fellowship over meals? Excuse me there. Could you please pass me, Abraham, the shrimp wrapped in bacon? That's not going to go very well. How can they fellowship? How can they worship? 
This is exactly the nature and principles that Paul lays down for us today. So let's jump. Just look at the first verse with me in Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Paul starts out right away with a command, welcome the one who is weak in the faith. And so right away, we've got a couple immediate questions that pop up from just this one verse. First, who are the weak? It's overwhelmingly clear from the context of the early church and from the context of where we've been in Romans with Paul talking about Jews and Gentiles and these people coming together, their different backgrounds, their different personal convictions and scripture in general, that the weak appear to be the Jewish Christians in Rome, the ones who have a sensitive conscience towards everything else that's going on around them, the food laws, the holy days, all of that. This will become clear from the context of our passage as we, as we move on. One commentator put it this way, the weak person is the one whose conscience is still bound by scruples from which the gospel normally sets us free. In other words, there are some things that they used to practice under the old covenant, under the Jewish law, that now the word of God and the gospel has set them free from and they no, no longer have to practice them, but they still feel it. Their conscience still gives them a little, a little twinge. They're feeling pressure. They're feeling this conflict in their soul and their conscience. Second, what does it mean to be weak in faith? It means that your conscience is just that. It's convicted about some things that we're now free in Christ that we don't necessarily have to do. And central to this passage, again, is the nature of the human conscience. Another definition of the conscience by author Andy Nacelli is your consciousness of what you believe is right or wrong. It's your awareness of what you believe is right or wrong. The Puritans used to refer to the conscience as God's watchman and spokesperson in the soul. There are things that we inherently feel are wrong in our hearts and we feel conviction when we do them. Let's also say two really important things about the conscience. First of all, no two consciences are exactly the same. Every single person has slightly different consciences about different things. And the second thing is, I hope you guys realize this, no conscience is 100% right. The only conscience that's 100% right is God through the Holy Spirit. And so none of us get it totally right. Remember those two things as we march through this. No two consciences are the same, and nobody's conscience is exactly right. Third, what does it mean to welcome those who are weak? Well, it means not to look down on them. It means don't poke fun at them that they haven't arrived quite yet to this spiritual maturity. As Paul says, don't quarrel over opinions. And that's an important note. We're dealing with opinions here, disputable matters. These are not first-order doctrinal issues, okay? We aren't talking about differences of opinion, whether Jesus is fully God and fully man, or disputes on how we uh, think about the Trinity, or how are we actually saved those things are first-order issues. Paul's not talking about those. We're talking about lower-level issues like food laws and holidays and how your background affects those. And so what sorts of opinions, again, is Paul going to talk about? Well, that's where he's going to get specific. Look at verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person believe, or eats only vegetables. Sorry. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. 
Okay, so lots to unpack. First, Paul describes the exact nature of what's going on here, the situation in play. He says, one person thinks according to their conscience, and they believe and they feel that they can eat any food at all. The next person in church thinks that they should eat only vegetables. This clarifies, again, that we're talking about food, and specifically the food laws. Questions on what foods are okay for someone to eat, because it has to be about Jews and Gentiles. The Old Covenant specified in exact detail, anybody doing the chronological read this year, when you get to Leviticus, you're going to want to quit. Don't quit. Okay? In exact detail, they're going to tell you what foods are good and what foods are not for Israel under the Old Covenant, but that is not for us. Now that Christ has fulfilled the law, that's no longer necessary because he's made all foods clean. But again, if you are raised in all that, if you were raised in, in knowing exactly what you should eat and not eat, and then suddenly somebody says, brother, we don't need that anymore. Are you going to be like, hmm, okay, cool. No, you're still going to feel that tug on your conscience. And that's what Paul's talking about. Most commentators think that Paul uses uh, only vegetables, saying as a way for a Jewish Christian to steer very clear of anything that could possibly be sacrificed to an idol or anything that is not kosher. As you might imagine, in Rome, probably kosher meat was pretty hard to find. So they said, forget it. We're not even going to even deal with it. We're just going to eat vegetables. So we say, far away from all of that. Paul goes on to give instruction then on how these differences in conscience should be dealt with. He says, to the one who can eat anything, don't despise, don't look down upon those who can't. And let not the one who can't eat certain things condemn the one who is. The word translated as despise here at ESV means to show by one's attitude or manner of treatment that an entity has no merit or worth. So you're looking down on your brother for the way that they view a disputable matter. You're treating them with contempt. You're belittling them. You you're might even be mocking them. Mocking your Jewish brother or sister because they haven't fully understood the truth has set us free or the truth that Christ has set us free from the old covenant. But the flip side is also true. You Jewish brothers and sisters, don't you be looking at the Romans who are enjoying steak with bacon on top and don't be saying that they are pagans. Look at those pagans eating all those unclean foods. It works both ways. Calvin puts it this way. For as many Jews still cling to the shadows of the law, he indeed admits that this was a fault in them. Yet he requires that they should be for a time excused for to press the matter urgently on them might have shaken their faith. Calvin says, okay, fine. They're wrong, okay? Let them be wrong. It's not a big deal. You don't want to press your opinion on them because you might shake their faith. Verse 4 says, uh, Paul turns up the heat a little bit. He says, besides, who are you to judge someone else? That's not your job. That's the Lord's job. Each of us will be sustained or not before God in our convictions by God himself. The reference here to standing or falling either means in final judgment when we finally stand before God and he vindicates us or else finds fault in us for our conscience on something, or it simply means that God is the one who will sustain us in those consciences or not. I'm sorry and not sorry for all of that background leading up to the first point, but it's vitally important to understand the context of this passage. So here's the first point. We are not to judge another believer's conscience on disputable matters. 
We are not to judge another believer's conscience on disputable matters. When we go to apply this, there's a few things that are really important to note. First, what does it mean to judge, right? That's a big squishy term in our current culture, right? Can't judge me, don't judge me, only God can judge me, right? Besides John 3.16, that's the most well-known Bible verse in the whole world by everybody. Thou shalt not judge. And they even go KJV on you and throw in the thou, right? And what does it mean to judge? In this context, the word judge means to condemn. It means to declare as wrong. And Paul's talking to the strong, those whose consciences allow them to eat anything. They know that Christ has fulfilled the law, and they're thus free from the ceremonial aspects of God's law, like the food restrictions. But the Jewish Christians, again, due to their upbringing, due to their background, their conscience, they can't eat the foods that they think are unclean because they've had decades of practice and decades of the law telling them not to. But the Gentiles didn't. They have no idea what these things are. And therefore, they are disputable matters. They're matters of opinion. They're not matters of salvation. Is it sinful for them to abstain because of their conscience? Absolutely not. In fact, it would be worse for them to eat against their conscience. And we'll talk about that when we get farther in chapter 14. And that's another point of comparison here. Then why the soft stance here? We see in other places like Galatians where Paul drops the hammer on the Judaizers who said that the Gentiles must be circumcised to obey the law in order to be saved. He comes down on them hard, but here he's like, don't judge them. Welcome them. Why? Kind of leads us to our second kind of question here in application. Are we ever allowed or supposed to judge another believer, or do they have immunity? Do they ever just, or do all believers have immunity? Are we ever allowed to judge? Does this apply universally? No. We know that. We are called to actually judge our fellow brothers and sisters, but not according to matters of conscience. Paul famously talks about that in 1 Corinthians 5, when a horrific situation of sexual sin is happening in the Corinthian church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 12, For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside Purge the evil person from among you. He's talking about sexual immorality in the church. He's like, yeah, y'all need to judge that. That's sin. So we're called to judge sin for sure. This is not the only place where he talks about it. We're called to judge each other's fruit or sin. We are supposed to speak up and help one another if someone's caught in sin. And that's where we get into the focus of, well, what are we talking about here? What's a disputable matter? What's not? The clearer it is in Scripture and the closer it is to the gospel, the more clearer and closer it comes. And it really, we really have to understand that that's where we need to judge. Disputable matters like food and holidays are not that close to the gospel. And you see they're from people's backgrounds and they involve feelings and consciences. And that's why he has grace. But other matters, if they're close to the gospel... There's a strong stance by Paul. This week in Bible study, men's Bible study, 7.30 p.m. every Wednesday night in the law office, shameless plug. We started our way through the Jerusalem council, and in Acts 15.1, the people said to Paul, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And you think Paul was like, oh, hey, let's have some grace here. Let's, let's not judge anybody. No, absolutely not. Paul drops the hammer. 
The parallel passage in Galatians 5.2 says, if you accept the circumcision, then Christ will be of no advantage to you at all. Why didn't he say that about food laws? Why didn't he say, hey, if you can't eat bacon, then Christ is of no value to you at all? Because it's not the same thing. They're two totally different things. Circumcision means, okay, well, if I'm saved by circumcision, then why did Christ have to die? First order issue. We're not talking about that here. So Paul urges grace. So when are, they, when are we supposed to judge, not condemn, but assess our brother or sister when they violate the clear teaching of Scripture on first order issues? Any first order issue or doctrine we are to judge or assess regarding to what Scripture clearly teaches as sin. Again, let's take sexual sin for an example. We see Paul came down hard on that in 1 Corinthians 5. But the problem is when a pastor stands up here and reads a verse that says, do not pass judgment on the servant of another, then our culture hears that and goes, ding, 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 ding. I told you, I can live any way I want to and you can't judge me. That's false. That's not what we're talking about here. We are called to judge or assess things as sin that are sin, but not matters of conscience. I'm not going to condemn you for the fact that you can't eat something that I feel I can. I'm not going to look down on you. I'm not going to mock you about that. Absolutely, we must remember what Paul says about sin, what, the, what, the God, what God's law says about sin. But a Jewish Christian who's still hung up on the food laws, no judgment, but grace. Augustine put it this way. Paul says this so that when something might be done according to good or bad motives, we should leave the judgment to God and not presume to judge the heart of someone else which we do not see. We can't see somebody's heart. We can see somebody's actions and we can compare them to the word of God. And if it's sin, that's different. But if it's a matter of the heart of conscience, there's grace. Gentile Christians are to welcome the Jewish Christians, not to look down on them. Let them grow in their faith, and maybe one day they will come to their own conclusions and their own understandings as they mature in time. It's not your job, Paul says, Gentile Christians, to go around and try to convince them about how foods are no longer unclean. You're not supposed to recalibrate someone else's conscience with your conscience with regard to food or holy days. Let's see what Paul says about that. Don't worry, we're going to pick up some speed now. I got the foundation set, we're good. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For, for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be, both, um, be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Paul moves from his argument on Exhibit A, the food laws, to now Exhibit B, which is holidays or holy days. Jewish days. He says one person esteems or honors one day as more special than the rest. The other person says, I don't know. It's all the same. Most likely, the days that Paul has in mind here again are the holy days of the old covenant calendar, all of the feast days. 
up front. This is a sidetrack and a sermon all by itself. I don't buy the argument that the Sabbath is included in here because the Sabbath is still in effect in the Lord's day. It's in creation. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's in the New Testament in Hebrews. So I don't think you can just throw out the Sabbath here. I don't think he's talking about the Sabbath. The Jewish Christian similar to all the food laws, has a conscience that when those feast days come around, they're like, oh yeah, for like 50 years, I celebrated Passover. For like 50 years, I celebrated the Feast of the Booths. And now that these days are coming, along, coming around, no one else is. And I feel weird about that. I feel like we should be honoring this day. Uh, again, the other side, imagine being a Gentile believer and having no clue, no idea what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, or the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Trumpets, you have no clue. For you, it's just a Tuesday. But for somebody else, it's a really big deal. Christ has fulfilled the law. So just like the food laws, we no longer need to honor what was given to Israel under the Old Testament for their feast days. But you cannot convince, possibly, the Jewish heart who celebrated them for so many years so easily in that. Spurgeon put it this way, the coming of Christ has done away with the old dispensation. These holy days are all types and shadows whose substance is in Christ. Has not the Lord shown to Peter, who is the minister of the circumcision, that from now on nothing is common or unclean? Again, Spurgeon verifying that Relax, guys. We're no longer under those food laws. We're no longer under those old covenant feast days. And Paul drops another command in verse 5. Each one should be fully convinced in their own mind. In other words, be intentional. Be settled on the matter. Not saying that you won't ever mature. Not saying that you won't ever change your opinion. There are many things that I have changed my opinion on. Don't worry, nothing of first order issues. But strive to be fully convinced in your own mind. Why? Verse 6 tells us. Because the one who is doing these things, he's doing it to honor the Lord. He's giving thanks to the Lord. This is their way of honoring the Lord. If the Jewish Christian honors the Feast of First Fruits, even though it's no longer necessary, and he gives thanks to God for that, leave him alone. He's honoring the Lord. Once again, the opposite side is true. The one who doesn't honor those days, don't be mocking them. And the one who does, don't be thinking that because they're not, that they're pagans, that they're unbelievers. Paul Reiterate said it works the same way as different foods. Again, if you abstain or if you don't abstain, he, he reiterates that. Why? Because life isn't about us. It's about us honoring God and loving others. We've seen that time and time again over the last few weeks. It seems like we've talked about it a couple times, right? The greatest commandment being to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. You're not doing that if you are condemning your brother for these disputable matters. Paul says poetically in verse 7 through 9, None of us lives to himself or dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Because whether we're living or dead, guess what? We still belong to God. This is part of what Christ accomplished with his death and his resurrection. He's now Lord of the living and the dead. So you're not the Lord of them. Christ is. So in other words, don't worry about what your brother or sister is doing so much about these disputable matters. Instead, be fully convinced in your own mind 
that what you are doing, you are doing to truly honor the Lord. And so our second point is this. We are to be fully convinced that we are honoring God with our conscience. We're to be fully convinced that we're honoring God with our conscience. Our positions on all things cannot be willy-nilly, haphazard, knee-jerk responses. Christians are to be the most well-informed people on all opinions that matter to us, okay? The danger is going on autopilot. The danger is listening to the news and saying, yeah, I'll probably believe that, kind of going over there like a jellyfish. The danger is listening to friends and family. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, that sounds good. I'll go over there like that. No, we need to stop, engage, use our biblical filters, and have a fully convinced position on whatever it is. We cannot go on autopilot and just follow the world. We have to inform our consciences. We have to calibrate our conscience through the Holy Spirit by the Word of God. But keep in mind, the consciences of others, they're as well, calibrating their own consciences, right? And nobody has the same two consciences. It's no accident that Paul uses the word mind here. We're to be fully convinced in our own minds. And so Christians, we have to engage our brains. And this is where the evangelical, squishy, non-denominational megachurch doesn't help us because it's all about feelings. It's all about Jesus is my boyfriend songs and I cried during worship and therefore I had an experience and the smoke and the lights and the lasers and no, 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 minds. We must be fully convinced in our own minds. That means we have to think about these things. The power of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. Conscience itself, conscience with knowledge. But it's a knowledge that just doesn't affect the mind, it affects the heart as well. And so maybe an application, we ask ourselves, do we ever question our conscience? Do we ever just stop and think, like, why do I feel that way about that? Is that biblical? Is that true? Why do I feel that way? Is it because of my upbringing? Is it really true? Is it not? Our feelings aren't always right. <laughs> We've got to remember that. We've got to inform our feelings with the word of God. If we have a position that we feel is founded on the word of God, watch this. If we have a position that we're like, because we can swing all the way the other way. Oh, yeah, I'm intellectual. I got this nailed down. Here are my 17 points why I feel this way from the word of God. And you look in your rearview mirror and all you see is a trail of broken relationships and conflict. That's not a biblical position. <laughs> That's an arrogant, intellectual, legalistic position. We've got to remember that. Do we ever question our own conscience? But remember, it's not being fully convinced about a position if we just kind of tap out and say, well, I just feel that way, right? When we get into conversations apologetically, when we talk about things in life, right, that's one of the things we'll see from a worldview. 99% of the people out there with a secular worldview have not thought about their worldview, it's just a hodgepodge of things that they feel, that they mix together in a giant bowl, and it's like, well, I don't feel God is like that. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> he doesn't care about your feelings. <laughs> this, this is, he, he is a certain way. But yet our feelings as Americans drive the bus, right? And so then we mistake feelings for knowledge. It's both. We've got to balance both. Each of these extremes 
blows right past the main point of why you'd have any position at all. Any position at all you would have, whether it is, I just feel this way, or whether it's, I've researched it to death and I'm a raging legalist about this. It loses the balance of what? What are we called to do? Honor God. That's what Paul says. Leave him alone. He's honoring God. He's giving thanks to God. That's the reason we should have a position on anything, is because I'm honoring God with this, because it aligns with his word. Our consciences have to be properly calibrated, which means they have to be biblical and balanced with love. You guys know what calibrated means, right? It means something has to actually be in sync. Like hopefully our speedometers read what is actually the speed or else you get a a speeding ticket, right? There's a problem with my scale at home. It says I'm currently five pounds heavier than I was before Christmas. So I have to get that looked at. It's a problem with calibration. I'm sure it's... Not it. My, my clothes are also shrinking somehow, so we have to get the washing machine looked at now. It's lots of calibration needed in the rule home. Stop and think where, who, who is writing this. It's the Apostle Paul, right? An ex-Pharisee, an expert in the law. He's the one who used to enforce the food laws. He's the one who used to enforce the holy days and the feast days. He's the one who went after the early church because they said Jesus is the Messiah and they said we didn't have to follow any of that anymore. It would be heresy if he were still a Pharisee. We calibrate our our consciences by the Holy Spirit, working through the Word of God and balanced by love for God and others. There's a helpful little book written by Andy Nacelli about the conscience and he says this about Paul. Imagine what a jungle Paul's conscience was the day, became, the day he became a Christian. With not only all of God's good rules in it, but also all of the cultural scruples and the hundreds of commandments from his life as a Pharisee. But it's clear, at some point in Paul's life, he opened the gates of the garden to Jesus and said, It's yours, Lord. Tell me what it says. Tell me what goes. Tell me what's missing. This is what the mature Christian must do. We've got to open up our consciousness to the word of God and we've got to say, is this what this really says? And is this balanced by actually honoring God? First and second greatest commandment, loving God and loving others. Why? Because one day we're all going to stand before him and then we are going to give an account for our consciences. And he's the only judge. Look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul asked them a very sharply worded question. Why are you doing this? Why are you judging them? Why are you judging your brother's conscience? Why are you looking down on them? Why are you belittling them for what they think about the food laws and the the feast days? Because guess what, Christian? You will stand before God one day, and you're not going to have to tell me. You're going to have to tell him. Verse 11, he quotes Isaiah 45, 23, for good measure. In context, it was Isaiah proclaiming that God was the only Savior, as we read in our Old Testament reading. There is no other Savior. There is no other Messiah. There is no other God. There is no other judge. And so Paul's saying, hey, I'm doing you a solid here. You better think about this, and you better stop, because one day you're going to have to explain it to God, because he's the only true judge. Every single human being must and will 
Stand before the judgment seat of God. Not the judgment seat of Pastor Mike. Not the judgment seat of your spouse or your friend or the news before God. Remember, church, Paul is writing to Christians. Sometimes we think, oh, well, I'm a Christian. I'm not going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Au contraire, you are going to stand before the judgment seat of God. You're not going to be judged for your sin because Christ judged that on the cross through his blood. But God will say, what did you do with the life I gave you? What did you do with the heart I gave you? What did you do with the word of God that I gave you? How did you grow in maturity? He's going to judge us for rewards, and he's going to judge us for how we treated other people in the heart. Commentator Douglas Moo writes this, Paul is especially concerned to remind Christians that they will be among those who must give an account of their behavior before the sovereign and all-knowing judge of history. Right? And as much as we think we know about someone else's opinion or think we know about their heart, God's the only one who's going to truly know it because he's the sovereign and all-knowing judge of history. In short, if we judge our brothers and sisters' hearts, God's going to judge us, us for that. Paul summarizes in verse 12. He says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Not anyone else, but to God. And guess what? If you judge your brother's conscience sinfully, if you look down on him, if you despise him, if you cut him out of your life because of his views and they're not as developed as yours, or on the other side, if you find fault with him as a pagan sinner because he dares to eat a Taylor ham, egg, and cheese and not celebrate a certain day, you're going to have to explain that to God. Why is Paul so upset about them judging others? He's why. Because they're taking the place of God. He says, there's only one judge and you're not it. You're taking God's role. Calvin writes powerfully, it is immeasurable boldness in anyone to assume the power to judge his brother since by taking such a liberty he robs Christ, the Lord of the power which he alone has received from his father. If you're going to judge someone else's heart, especially on a disputable matter, you are stepping into God's lane. That's a very, very dangerous place to be. And Paul says, don't do it. Here's the point. We should prepare to face judgment with a clear conscience. We should prepare to face judgment with a clear conscience. Remember, what is in view here? Differences of opinion on disputable matters. And you are going to condemn your brother and your sister over that. Besides the sin of judging someone improperly, you're judging someone that only God's going to judge. So now you're doubly in trouble. Again, are we called to judge the claims of other believers in relation to Scripture? Yes, we covered that. Are we called to judge each other in relation to sin that we might see? Yes, we have to. But disputable matters that come from someone's conscience, absolutely not. Now, one important thing to note is that this does not prohibit us from having conversations about disputable matters. Paul just says don't judge them and don't quarrel over them. But if a brother or sister is stuck, like think of a, a, a Jewish believer stuck in this way of, of still adhering, adhering to the food laws or still worrying about the holy days, that doesn't mean we can't talk to them and say, um, hey, look, just, you know, let's, let's look at the scriptures together. Let's look at what Christ did. That's a much different posture than condemning them. So that does not mean that we can't have conversations with them full of grace with an open Bible. That being said, again, in application, church, do we think this way about Judgment Day? Do we think this way about Judgment Day? Do we think that God's going to crack open this 
crazy, conflicted heart of ours, right? One day, open it up and look in there and just root around and sort everything out. Do we think that way? That's what Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us to call out heresy. Scripture calls us or tells us to call out sin. Scripture never call, tells us to call out someone else's conscience on a disputed matter. We should look to judgment and strive to face judgment with a clear conscience concerning our brothers and sisters. To those of us with a strong conscience, have we sinfully judged someone for their stand on a disputable matter? Do we arrogantly judge them because they haven't arrived yet? Those with a weak conscience, have we arrogantly judged our brothers and sisters who think things differently than we do? Have we forced our beliefs on someone else? Or have we sinfully judged those who don't hold to our convictions? This isn't how it's supposed to work in the church. One commentator put it this way, gospel communities should major in mutual support. Members should give God space to work with people whose devotion needs an upgrade. In all our relationships with believers, other believers, we are to embody the grace that God has shown us in Christ. Maybe people have a wrong interpretation of Scripture in disputable matters, but it's not for us to look down on them, and it's not for us to, con to confront them with it and try to convince them. It's ours to love them and give God the space to change their hearts. And that's where it comes down to, once again, love. Love. Everything must be balanced with love. Love for God and love for others. And so I'll say this is the big idea. Our consciences must be biblically balanced with love for God and others. Our consciences must be biblically balanced with love for God and others. Because we could go off into battle and say, no, God told me to do this. But is it loving to your brother? And we could, we could just love our brother and totally accommodate to their views without being fully convinced in our own minds and studying the Scripture. What is our highest calling? To love God and love others. We can have all the knowledge in the world, but if it's not done to love and honor God, then it's not true knowledge. If it's not out of love for others, then it's not true knowledge. Our consciences need that calibration, and we calibrate it with the Word of God, and we balance it with love, love for God and love for others. We are not to judge another believer's conscience on disputable matters. We're to be fully convinced that we are honoring God with our own conscience, and we should prepare and think about that day when we will stand before God Almighty, and he will judge us for our hearts and how we judged others. We read in the word of God that love is the most important thing. Love for God and love for others. So in disputable matters, just like in Rome, with food laws and feast days, we too need to biblically balance our own consciences with that love for God and love for for others. Father, we thank you for this word, this passage. It seems a little obscure to us at times when we think about these things that we, most of us have zero exposure to. But Lord, help us to think in context and help us to then make that leap to application. How this passage affects our actual lives. Help us to look at our relationships with our brothers and sisters, Lord, to balance it with love for you and love for others. Help us to be fully convinced in our own minds, Lord. Lord, let us not be these, like people who are drifting with no opinions, with no informed opinions. May we have scripturally informed opinions, but not at the expense of love. 
And would you be glorified in our church and in the relationships with each other? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.